millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, a show where I share the best stuff to listen to from all over the world. On this week's show, a very fatal murder sends up Serial, S-Town and other true crime podcasts in a very funny parody. This episode of A Very Fatal Murder is brought to you by Complete Meal. Complete Meal delivers perfectly portioned fresh ingredients to your home, along with professional chefs to cook them, spoon them into your mouth and move your jaw in a grinding motion. A show that doesn't really care if it sends you to sleep. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and friends beyond the binary. It's time for Sleep With Me, the podcast that puts you to sleep. Plus, Canadian teenagers take the mic to talk about challenges in their lives and how they overcome them. Testing. Testing. Make full drop in five, okay. four, um, um, three, two, drop the mic. <laughs> and remember Monica Lewinsky and that blue dress. In the long history of the American presidency, there's never been anything like this. Sex, lies, and constitutional duty. These kind of issues are not private matters. Congress is rushing to overthrow the commander-in-chief. What has happened in this town? Where is the decency? The highly rated Slow Burn returns this week, covering the Bill Clinton impeachment scandal. That's all coming up, and you can get in touch by email at pods at radionz.co.nz, on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, or you can record and send in voice messages using RNZ's Vox Pop app. Whether you're a fan of true crime podcasts like Serial and S-Town or not, then here's something you might enjoy. From Onion Public Radio, some of episode one of A Very Fatal Murder. What makes a murder perfect? What elevates a murder from a regular ho-hum killing to a crime so gruesome and compelling that it deserves its own podcast? Does a murder like that even exist? Is it somewhere out there? waiting to be found the next time I open a letter from a convict or the next time I rest myself out of bed at 2 a.m. to check the Google alert I set for the word decapitated? Or is it just a fantasy, a wild goose chase that will end in nothing but run-of-the-mill kidnappings, dull acts of sexual bondage, or the same old mass murder-suicides that say nothing about the fabric of America in the 21st century? Is it all just a beautiful dream? I'm David Pascal, and I've been asking myself these questions for years. For the first time, I finally have some answers. Hey, Ethel. Hello, David. What would you like me to do today? A. Go online. B. Access my homicide locator function. C. Send email. D. Play music. B. Okay, David. Retrieving homicides. This is Ethel. That stands for Extremely Timely Homicide Locator, by the way. Ethel's a supercomputer. Onion Public Radio hired a team of engineers at MIT to build her in order to help us find the most interesting, violent, culturally relevant murder cases in America. 
We've programmed Ethel so that not only can she comb through thousands of murders in a matter of homicide, minutes, double homicide, murder suicide, suffocation, satanic ritual, poison, but she can also update her own code based on what would make the most incisive, critically acclaimed OPR podcast. She's always learning. David, I have some murders that involve the resentment of the white working class. Would you like me to print to North Printer? Yes. I've been working with Ethel for three years trying to find the perfect case. We never stop pushing. Homicide 30971B, Joshua Diamond. Kidnapped by stepfather in 1987. Severed head found in laundry machine. Hmm. Ethel, can you set a filter for female victims only? Ethel's settings can be adjusted to search for any number of factors. For example, we thought we had found our podcast when Ethel located the case of a girl who was raped and killed on the night of her 16th birthday, but we thought the situation didn't say enough about the decline of the middle class, so we changed the algorithm. Update complete. Please restart computer. Then, about a year ago, we thought we had it. It was a case that involved a whole group of coal miners, who are probably illiterate, but in a way that's charming and perfect, who went missing during a strike. The ideal case. We even started doing some preliminary interviews. Nobody ain't telling us nothing. Nope. They act like they just gone fishing or something. Oh, no. But we know. Wait, no. They killed him. They ain't fishing. I miss my daddy. I miss my But then our sponsor, Hillamunk Cheese, pulled out because they were dealing with a labor dispute of their own. After years of work, we were back to square one. But we didn't give up. Instead, we got better. We kept tweaking Ethel hoping that the perfect murder was out there somewhere. Retrieving homicides. Then, finally, after years of searching for the perfect murder, a murder that's engrossing and mysterious, a murder that perfectly reflects our nation's current economic and social conditions, a murder that comments on the past and future of intersectional feminism, a murder in which a really hot white girl dies. Homicide 9924R, Haley Price. We found Haley Price. Haley Price was a typical 17-year-old with big dreams and clear skin when she was killed. She was a high achiever, a debate champion, a prom queen, a doting girlfriend. But Haley also excelled at being murdered. One chilly Thursday morning in May, Haley was found on the floor of the local bottle cap factory that her father worked at. What's more, she was dead. Haley's case fulfilled every one of the requirements we had plugged into Ethel. It was gruesome. It was unsolved. It commented on the ugly underbelly of the American dream, the decline of manufacturing, modern beauty standards, the gig economy, factory farming, deforestation, saturated fats, the fragility of love, the golden era of television, and CO2 emissions. And most importantly, no one had done a podcast about it yet. 100% match. Retrieving coroner's report. The coroner's report the Bluff Springs Police Department provided states that Haley Price was shot three times in the head. She had multiple stab wounds. She was strangled and smothered with a pillow. She was soaking wet and had clearly been drowned. She had dirt of the same composition found on Mars under her fingernails. She had been dead for seven hours when her body was found, but her fingernails had been painted 15 minutes ago. She was wearing the class ring of a boy who wasn't her boyfriend, Brian, even though he's a great guy and deserves way better. She had scratches on her arms and a bite mark on her leg. She was wearing a shirt that, according to her best friend, Alex, was super ugly and not her style at all. Her hair had been cut into a Beatles mop top. So what happened to Haley Price? And how can I get in on it? It's a full moon. Horrible. Just horrible. I'd keep an eye on Callaway if I were you. What do you mean Haley's dead? Oh my God, you didn't know? From The Onion and Onion Public Radio, I'm David Pascal, and this is a very fatal murder. 
We rejoin our host in Nebraska later in the same episode where attention's turning to a mysterious local businessman called Mr. W.O. Callaway. I was starting to get to know Bluff Springs, but I still wanted to get to know Haley. So after I checked into my hotel and sent the OPR interns to pitch their tents on the side of the road, I went to talk to Haley's parents. This episode of A Very Fatal Murder is brought to you by Complete Meal. Complete Meal delivers perfectly portioned fresh ingredients to your home, along with professional chefs to cook them, spoon them into your mouth, and move your jaw in a grinding motion. No more guesswork and stress when it comes to making, eating, and digesting dinner. Complete Meal chefs will even let you know when it's time to say, mmm, good, and I'm full. Complete Meal. She was just a happy kid, you know? And she would just come home and say, Daddy, I want to be an astronaut, or Daddy, I want to be a vet. I, I want to have ten horses, Daddy. She was her little dreamer. <laughs> I'm interviewing Haley's parents, John and Bethany Price, in their home in Bluff Springs. There are little hints of Haley everywhere, from the picture of her on the mantle to the couch she probably used to make out with her boyfriend Brian on. This must be really hard to talk about. It's been the worst month of our lives, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah, you must have cried so much. <laughs> Yeah, yes. I just wish I could have been there. Haley was just, she was this bright light in everyone's lives. When she was going to be a vet, she wanted to go away to vet school and then come back and open a practice here. She worked at the pet store. She just loved animals and people, too. Would you mind passing me that box of tissues? Actually, your sniffles are, are coming through really well in the mic, so let's just stay on this. Um, Mr. Price, would you mind talking more about Haley's hopes and dreams for the future? Well, she just, she was going to go off to college. Yeah, had her pick a school. Oh, did she apply to NYU? That's my alma mater. No, she was going to stay in state. Haley was really a home. Oh, that's a shame. I really think she would have loved it. The Prices seem to be responding really well to memories of their dead daughter. So I asked them to show me Haley's room, which they had kept perfectly preserved since her death. It was a typical 17-year-old girl's room, plastered with photos of Haley and her friends, pictures drawn by the little girl she used to babysit, and magazine clippings. She was really an artistic kid. You know, she loved music. She liked buying all the fashion magazines. And she was always, you know, cutting pictures out and changing her wall around and all that. Yeah, I was kind of an art kid, too. I mean, I definitely hung out with everyone. I could easily jump between groups, but art was probably my main thing. Oh, was that Haley at prom last year? Oh, yep. There she is, the prom queen herself. She loved taking pictures of her friends. Oh, and there's Orlando Bloom. Yeah, he's great. And now it's time for a word from our sponsor, BoxBox. Actually, would you mind just reading this? Uh, what? And if you have any personal experience using BoxBox, uh, you could add that if it's positive, of course. Um. BoxBox is the service that sends a brand new box to your door every month. With BoxBox, you'll never need to drive hundreds of miles and pay hundreds of dollars for a box again. Sign up for BoxBox by going to BoxBox.com and entering our promo code Haley for 10% off your first BoxBox. BoxBox. Is that okay? Awesome. Um, Have you ever ordered these? No. Oh, well, let me know if you do, because I think if you order one, I get one for free. I was starting to get a more complete picture of Haley. To the people who know her, she wasn't just a perfect murder case. She was a girl with dreams of leaving her middle-of-nowhere town and traveling to New York City. She dreamed of attending cultural events and literary readings. But that dream will never become a reality. 
Never will Haley return home after a long day of freelance journalism to her live-in boyfriend and miniature poodle. Never will she lie on the roof of her bedsty walk-up with her college friends, taking in the glory of the city around her. Her life was cut short. And for what? After talking to Haley's parents, I knew what I had to do. I had to make the best podcast ever produced. I had to get more downloads and iTunes reviews than any podcast in history. I had to win awards. I could not let Haley die in vain. Episode one of A Very Fatal Murder from Onion Public Radio. And thanks to the show's producer, Brian Petkoff at The Onion, for his help in bringing that to you. Sleep With Me is a show that doesn't really care if it puts you to sleep. In fact, that's kind of the point. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and friends beyond the binary. It's time for Sleep With Me, the podcast that puts you to sleep. I'll be barely engaging, but just get engaging enough to keep your mind off of stuff. And walk at your side, keep you company as you drift off into dreamland. That's the goal of the show. It's quite difficult to describe one of these shows that go on for over an hour to someone who hasn't heard them before. Imagine that friendly, soothing voice meandering along, saying lots of unimportant, inconsequential stuff. For example, recent episodes have devoted lots of time to narrating overly detailed blow-by-blow observations and dialogue from the TV series The Good Place, or without being able to see the pictures, of course. It's the audio equivalent of soft white noise, the background whirring of an electric fan, which is actually meant as a compliment because every month all over the world, hundreds of thousands of people are tuning in to help them drop off. A few people have mentioned it to me recently, including Sam, who tweeted us at RNZ Podcast Hour, saying it was, quote, an essential, quote. I also spotted it on quite a few people's phones as I've been asking them what they've been listening to. And in fact, New Zealand's meant to be one of the show's fastest growing audiences. The man behind that voice you just heard is Drew Ackerman, a.k.a. Dearest Scooter. He's a former librarian living in California who now has a full-time job putting people all over the world to sleep. I asked him to describe the show to someone who's never heard it. I guess it's a bit like a bedtime story you'd tell a child. and I'm not exactly sure. It gets iffy after that, even explaining it as a creator. But it's something that's meant to take your mind off of whatever's keeping you awake, whether that's like thinking about work or thinking about the past or have listeners that are in chronic pain or they're just dealing with a major life event. And the whole idea of the podcast is I'm going to tell you a story that's going to take your mind off of that and and that the listener is not a character in the story. So they feel a little bit detached and distracted from whatever's keeping them awake. But the stories are kind of a bit dull and meandering and they have a lot of details. So they're, they're not only are they tough to concentrate on the, 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 as you listen, you say, well, I don't think I even need to pay attention to this story. And uh, ideally they, they just slowly drift off and, and the audio Kind of, kind of fades into the background until they're asleep. You're right. You know, you feel because it's a human voice, you're trying to tune into it. But the way that you talk and the way that you deliver and what you're talking about is very soothing. And you kind of try and tune into what you're saying for a certain amount of time, which distracts you from whatever else you're thinking about. And in the process, I guess you just relax and go to sleep eventually. Yeah, conceptually, it's a bit like having a friend over 
uh, at bedtime and you say, okay, here's the deal tonight. I want you to tell me all about your day and give me all the details, but I'm not going to listen to you. And uh, usually a friend would be offended or you'd be like, okay, are you going to let yourself out? Are you going to lock the doors? Are you going to leave any crumbs out? Uh, This takes those parts out of it. And it's just like, I'll talk to you and I'll fill you in in a friendly way, like a presence that's there just to comfort you and to distract you and to be there for you. But as the listener, you don't feel any pressure to listen to me. Ideally, they don't even feel pressure to fall asleep. Like uh, I do have a lot of listeners that are chronic insomniacs, and they're just listening to overcome loneliness. Uh, so so it's just like uh, calling a friend on the phone or calling your mom on the phone and being like, yeah, tell me about your uh, your uh, your knitting bee or, or, or the quilt you're working on. Uh, but you don't feel that social pressure to be like, active listening like oh yeah oh yeah tell me more oh yeah i'm so interested in that Get, keep going keep going uh hey are you up all night tossing turning mind racing trouble getting to sleep trouble staying asleep well welcome this is sleep with me the podcast that puts you to sleep we do with a bedtime story all you need to do is get in bed turn out the lights and press play i'm going to try to do the rest what I'm going to attempt to do is create a safe place where you could set aside whatever's keeping you awake, whether it's thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, changes in time or temperature, uh, travel, work stuff, whatever it is, whether it's something internal or external, uh, situational, relational, uh, whatever, like something from a musical, because I said, what is that? Is that a line from a musical, situational, relational, foundational? Whatever it is, I'm going to, I'm trying, I'm going to, I'm here to help. I'm here to try to help. I'm going to try to create a safe place and win your trust if you're new. And a safe place just means, yeah, you can uh, kind of like uh, relax a little bit, kind of uh, let some air out and see how it goes. It probably wasn't the job that you thought you'd be doing when you kind of mapped out your career. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a two-part answer to that. One, I will acknowledge is that I do have a, a natural ability to be over-superfluous and obsessed with details that other people might not find interesting, and, and I tend to go on long tangents uh, but I also am like the oldest of six kids, so we always were telling stories or, or telling goofy stories, or I would be awake and I would be telling my siblings stories. But yeah, I didn't think these two things would come together and I'd put people to sleep, but it really came out of, I felt like there was something missing, like there's all these sleep solutions and a lot of them feel like they're really pressure laden, like, oh, if you do this, this, and this, you'll fall asleep, or oh, if you pay us two thousand uh dollars you know we could give you a system to fall asleep or sometimes they're like serious like find your inner animal and walk with your inner animal and be you know be on the journey and and i a lot of that stuff just stressed me out personally and so i was like why is it there's something goofy and silly and friendly and i was like would anybody listen to that would would, would it work uh, and at some point i just said okay let's try it and, and see if if that's possible but I think for most people, like, it's nice to have a boar friend, which is my job, or a boar bay, or a boar bud, a boar sib, a boar cuz, a borber, right? Have we used that term before? It's like your boring neighbor. I'm your borber. Did you have problems sleeping yourself? Was that how it kind of started, that you were looking around for other, for, for solutions to help you sleep yourself? 
Well, yeah, when I was a kid, I had a lot of trouble at school in uh, in the early grades, like grade five and six, and I would get in a lot of trouble. So at night, I'd be always stressed about what was going to happen at the next day. And I started listening to comedy radio, uh, and I found it at night not to be sleep-inducing, but it made me feel less stressed out and less alone, and it took my mind off of worrying about school. And I never forgot those two things, like the pain and the stress and the loneliness. But then I never forgot that, like, oh, I felt like a part of these comedy radio shows. Like, I felt like the, the, the broadcasters and the comedians were there for me to keep me company. So it was kind of like this weird combination of, like, togetherness and loneliness uh, uh, that, that led to the podcast. And is, that, is this a full-time gig for you now, the podcast? I mean, how often do you record shows and things? I put out two shows a week, and that takes about uh, between four and five recording sessions. And yeah, like uh, just in 2018, I started doing this as a job, like uh, which is amazing to even me. And, and it's really something I really feel lucky to do. Like I get to tell bedtime stories and help people who are in this kind of desperate or stressful situation that I've been in. There's still some nights I won't have any caffeine after 12 o'clock and I'll try to be calm and I'll try to journal or maybe meditate or something and I still lie my head down and I can't sleep and it's it's this baffling thing and even science you know it still doesn't completely understand why we sleep and how we get to sleep so it could be humbling but then I guess it reminds me it's like okay uh, this is why, why I make this podcast is I still get that fresh reminder of how irritating it can be and then how you start to think about, man, my, what do I, I got all that stuff I got to do tomorrow. I can't possibly be tired. And then once the ball starts rolling, it's really hard to interrupt that pattern and, and say, well, should I get out of Then I start to debate, should I get out of bed? Should I stay in bed? Should I fix some tea? Should I fix some milk? Uh, maybe I should, no, then I'll have to go to the bathroom. Should I, well, maybe I should get up. Now that I'm thinking about going to the bathroom, oh, no. So, yeah, it could be tough. What I'm going to do is send my voice across the deep, dark night. I'm going to use lowing, soothing, creaky, dulcet tones. Rusty meanders, faded sleep dust, meander wear, uh, which is what I wear under my clothes. Um, my meander, by the way, my meander wear is not rusty, just my meanders. My meander wear is uh, laundered. Have you ever listened to your own podcast to help you sleep? <laughs> you know, I've fallen asleep to my podcast, but it's been when I've been editing it at lunchtime <laughs> and I'm like full of, full of lunch and it's warm. And I'm trying to focus on the podcast, and I'm like trying to edit out the pauses and stuff like that. But yeah, when I try to listen to it, I guess I listen in a little bit too much detail for me to fall asleep. But I'll listen to something like sometimes I'll listen to classical music. I find the classical radio has a pretty standard format globally, where it's like classical music and then a very calming voice like oh we had just had brahms symphony at the you know the prague orchestra hall and and that, so so i usually listen to that because i find the combination of the music and the voice is pretty pretty uh pretty relaxing i've got to say i had a slightly awkward moment when i emailed you and i said oh you know let's have a chat about scooter and his persona i had that slightly uncomfortable feeling afterwards you know when you've seen an an actor and you see them playing a role and then you see them being interviewed in real life in inverted commas and you realize actually they're just they're just kind of almost playing themselves i suddenly thought my god what if drew and scooter are actually kind of the same person i'm talking about this persona and what i can hear is your voice has a similar quality to scooter but you obviously 
it is a kind of role that you play, isn't it? And you, you, the, the quality of your voice changes when you're Scooter. Yeah, I think you're really, you really nailed it. Like, it's like I get to inhabit when I'm playing Scooter, I get to inhabit like the best parts of myself and I get to put my internal critic at the, <laughs> like when I sit down to record, I really have to tell my internal critic, hey, can you stay outside here? I got to record the show and I'll be recording and then I can feel the dialogue starting. Oh, this is not going well. This is going terrible. Or, oh, this is not going. And then I have to stop and say, hey, you know what? I'm making a podcast to people, put people to sleep. I'm not writing a best-selling novel. So, uh, so it really enables me to kind of step outside of uh, some of the parts of me that keep me up at night and just be there and be like, just, I do try to imagine it's like, oh, I'm here to just tell you the listener bedtime story, whoever that one person that's listening is. And maybe it's that one person that's really in desperate circumstances. And in some sense, I'm also kind of trying to calm myself because I could be way too overthinking and over perfection. Uh, and when I'm there in that role, it gives me a context to kind of leave a lot of my uh, daytime daytime stressors aside and just be present for the listener. It's a real skill you've got, though, of kind of going down this conversational cul-de-sac and you kind of loop back on yourself. That's another thing. Like, that could be someone, hey, I'm an industrial fan. I'm a fan of industry. I'm an industrial fan. Or you could be a mass-produced fan for a fandom everywhere. You say, yeah, I'm an industrial fan, industrial strength fan. That's the Sleep With Me fans for sure. Right, regular. Can I can I get a uh, whoosh whoosh, uh, regular listeners? You just keep going. I mean, I was listening to you going. My God, you know, you just you you can just keep going like this. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I, I guess part of that is is a, a natural proclivity to uh, to over over focusing on on many too way too many details. But it's also just a matter of kind of staying calm and kind of following my thoughts mm. in a little bit of its attached way. Just like if you were out on a drive with, with like a, a older parent or something, and they're saying, "Oh, look at the ca- clouds," and "Oh, look at that ca- cow over there." Oh, why don't you take a right here? There's my favorite tree is down this road. It's kind of like being on that journey. I don't know if it's in my imagination or the collective unconscious or whatever it is, but but it's like I'm there, kind of observing and almost narrating what I'm seeing to the listener. And I'm trying to stay calm and stay in the moment and just stay observational. Yeah, there's really nothing like it that I've heard before. Drew Ackerman, a.k.a. Dearest Scooter of the Sleep With Me podcast. And Drew also shared a few shows he enjoys listening to with me. One is Girl in Space by Sarah Werner. That's meant to be good. Also, one I discovered recently through him is Nocturne, uh, which is a collection of stories and interviews all about the night. And sleeping and insomnia are recurring themes. You won't be surprised to hear. I'm hoping to bring you some of that soon. And let me know if you've found something soothing to listen to to help you drop off at night. Pods at radionz.co.nz is the email address. And in fact, since I spoke to Dearest Scooter, he's become even more of a podcast celebrity because he's just appeared in an episode of 99% Invisible called The Shipping Forecast. It's a really interesting look at the BBC's shipping forecast and how this has helped lull generations of insomniacs to sleep. Mike Drop from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is a show that lets teenagers take the microphone and tell their own stories in their own words. And when you listen to these youthful voices and perspectives, you realise you just don't hear that many of them on the radio. 
The subjects open up about how they're dealing with the challenges of discovering who they are and their place in a modern world dominated by digital technology and social media. Anyway, I'd like you to meet Evans. Hey guys, we just wanted to let you know that there's a description of violence in this episode. This, this is, is Mike Drop. Mike Drop? It's about us. Teens and our stories and what we've been through. What we are still going through. Without any adult interruptions. Testing. Testing. Mike will drop in five, okay. four, um, um, three, two. Drop the mic. <laughs> I've never held a mic before, and this feels good, actually. Hi, I'm Aaliyah. I'm 13, and I am in grade eight. I am so... So excited and so happy to be in the very first episode of Mic Drop. I just want to let you guys know that this is a teen zone. Our age group, our generation in this one little space. Sometimes you will hear an adult and that is because a teen wanted them to be a part of this and just would know that they would understand. So this first episode is about who am I? That's a really, really big question. While I think about it for a while, let me pass the mic to Evans. Welcome to my tour. The tour of my kingdom. In other words, my room. So right here is my poster. The poster I read every single mor morning to inspire me. And I think that every sentence is related to a step in my life. And it says, be brave and wild at heart. Every moment has the potential to be amazing. Do what you love. Happiness is not a destination. It is a way of life. Boom. And right here, on my right, this wall is I'm Evans, and I'm 13. I'm actually a football player, class president. I'm part of a chess club. Uh, I'm a runner. I'm a basketball player. Um, I'm a nice, generous, and humble person. I'm an explorer. I'm the hero of this story. Oh, of my story. Evans, that sounded cocky. I'm not bad. Okay, sorry. Being the hero of the story is going towards your destiny. So it's so it's like like the poster in my room. It's be brave and wild at heart. So that means like you have to be brave and not hide behind insecurity and the obstacles. I've been through a lot, I believe. My last memory of my father is when he was in this immigration cell and I went to go say bye. I didn't necessarily know why, but he was, in fact, ordered to be deported to his country, Nigeria. I was four at the time and now I'm 13. It's been nine years and yeah. The fact that my dad is in a different continent, um, it could deep down make me like probably sad, but... I don't really necessarily let it define the person I'm going to become. But I also, it's also harder like financially, but we're getting stronger together. We're three in the house and um, if my father was there, it'd be great. But right now he's not actually there. So I'm trying to find opportunities to actually go see him, considering the fact that it's harder for him to come here. But I don't let the intentions and the stats that say a boy without his father is destined to live with sadness and problems. I don't listen to those stats and those stereotypes. I don't let people's intentions define the person I'm going to become. I'm going to prove them wrong. What 
composes me today is a lot of the hard moments like that I lived at school. So I remember in even kindergarten to like third and fourth grade, it was hard because I was energetic. I wanted to do a lot of stuff, but the teacher would always punish me. They labeled me as this troublemaker, but I was actually, I just wanted to explore. And I wanted to learn more than just like defined mathematics and science and French. I wanted to learn more about life. But they didn't get that. And they just saw stuff as numbers and letters. They didn't see stuff beyond that. So it was hard. Other times where it was hard because my father wasn't there, um, my mom really tried to bring a positive and good uh, role model, a uh, male role model in our house. But some of them weren't the ones that my mom expected. Some of them were just really taking my mom's effort for granted. One night I was sleeping and I woke up. I was hearing like disruptive sounds. I went in my mom's room to actually see my mom's boyfriend at the time choking her. He looked intoxicated, which means drunk. And my mom was like crying. So I, I, I called my mom and she tried to come and like hide what I was seeing. She didn't want me to like go in contact with uh, her boyfriend at the time. So while she was coming to get me, the guy pushed her and she, my mom fell against the corner of the bed, which hurt her a lot. During that night, we didn't sleep. My mom came in my room. At that time, I was seven years old, seven or eight years old. Um, yeah, that was one of the moments that probably shocked me a bit. On Right next to my desk, there's actually like a vision board. So it's the ways to stay focused and to stay happy at the same time. And like my schedules for the week, let's say Monday, I plan making muffins in the morning and get ready for school, go run outside. And on the right, names of people that are actually good source of help and good source of inspiration, my football and basketball coaches, my big brothers from the Big Brothers and Big Sister Association named Alex, and um, my my mother, they always told me, even if they label you as something, you have to you have to go beyond it. You can't stay stuck in between those walls of reputation. So, so I had a mission in fifth grade to be a better person, and I I started to have a lot of good marks. Um, that was where I started to have a lot of one hundred percent. Like not to rag, but my record was like seventeen hundred percent in one semester. Concert, or I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a concert at Plaza Zara and I want y'all to, to do something magic. Mm -hmm. Do what? Like the rock. The rock you could do. Let's do what we do. Ricardo is one of my mom's friends and he actually became a really good model for us. We go do activities with him, but he's not like the adult that's going to supervise us. Like, we all, it's like a democracy. We all have the choice of going where we want, doing what we want. So it's like another friend of us. So we're five kids. One thing that we have in common is we all have the absence of our father, but that's not the main thing we have in our group. The main thing is actually our urge to explore together. And where would we go? Where would be the first place we'd 
Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. Only see the palm trees. We actually go climb mountains. We do a lot of activities. We dance in parking lots. We explore different restaurants. And we have good talks. Costa Rica, Costa Rica. Or in Zimbabwe. What if we go on an island? Like Tahiti? I don't think about the fact that, oh, I'm sad because my dad has left. I mostly think about the ways I can bring him back or I can go see him. So it's never like me crying in my room because my dad is in a, on a different continent and we're separated. It's like I mostly think, oh, soon, if I continue like this, I'll be probably be able to take a flight to Nigeria. I'll probably, um, one way or the other, find myself in Nigeria. Yeah, so that's what I believe. My big dream is to bring harmony to this world. Um, to be in the NBA and just to be happy. I reckon he might just do it too. Evans in an episode called Who Am I? from Mic Drop from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. You'll find links to this episode and all the others in the series on our webpage now at radionz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And thanks to Mic Drop's creator, Sherry OKK, and to Carrie Haber for their help in letting me play that to you. Remember Monica Lewinsky, the revelations about a sexual relationship between the then 22-year-old White House intern and the then 49-year-old Bill Clinton. It broke back in 1998. After digging deep into Watergate, the highly rated show Slow Burn comes back this week, covering events around the scandal that led to the impeachment of the US president. Here's some of that new series in an episode called Deal or No Deal that came out on Thursday New Zealand time. It revisits a lunch meeting 20 years ago between Monica Lewinsky and her supposed friend, Linda Tripp. Monica Lewinsky didn't know it, but her lunch meeting with Linda Tripp was never going to happen. Lewinsky was waiting for Tripp at the food court inside a shopping mall in Pentagon City, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. It was a typical suburban mall, brightly lit, with a movie theater, a Macy's, and white tiles on the floor. Lewinsky had come from the gym. She was still in her exercise clothes, and she was reading a magazine while she waited for her friend. It was Friday, January 16th, 1998. Lewinsky was 24 years old. About two years earlier, she'd become involved in a precarious relationship with the President of the United States. As Lewinsky later told her biographer, her relationship with Bill Clinton had come to overwhelm her life. She found it hard to think about anything else. Standing there at the Pentagon City Mall, Lewinsky looked up from her magazine, and she saw Linda Tripp heading towards her on an escalator. Suddenly she gestures. I mean, Linda Tripp is coming down on the escalator and gestures towards some men behind her. That's journalist Renata Adler. She wrote about Monica Lewinsky and what happened to her on this day in 1998 for Vanity Fair and the L.A. Times. And suddenly these guys apprehend her and they keep saying that she's already in steep trouble with the law and it can only get more steep unless she does as they ask. The two men who approached Lewinsky were wearing dark suits and carrying badges. They said they were with the FBI and that the Attorney General of the United States had authorized a criminal investigation into her actions. The FBI agents invited Lewinsky to follow them to a room in a nearby Ritz-Carlton hotel. Though they told Lewinsky that she was not under arrest, 
and was free to leave at any time, she agreed to go with him. Later, she said she went because she wanted to protect the president, that she was thinking, I have to fix this. As the scene in the food court unfolded, Linda Tripp tried to give Lewinsky a hug. Monica, this is for your own good, she said. Just listen to them. They did the same thing to me. But like so much of what Tripp had said to Lewinsky, that was a lie. While I was working on this show, I discovered that not everyone knows who Linda Tripp is. 20 years ago, Tripp was a world-famous supervillain. Her name was synonymous with treachery and manipulation. Tripp worked in the same office as Monica Lewinsky for much of 1996 and 1997. And during that time, Lewinsky spilled her guts to her colleague about the affair she was having with Clinton. Eventually, Tripp started recording her conversations with Lewinsky. And then, after making fake lunch plans with her at the Pentagon City Mall, Tripp delivered her friend to the FBI. The agents led Lewinsky to the 10th floor of the Ritz-Carlton and into room 1012. It was a standard unit, furnished with a dresser, a television set, a bed, and a chair. There, Lewinsky met two men from the Office of the Independent Counsel. One of them was a prosecutor named Bruce Udolph. The only thing we knew about Monica was from the tapes. And we had heard her voice, but we didn't know what to expect, how she was going to behave or act or anything. We assumed that she was not going to be a very submissive person, but we were not prepared <laughs> for her personality and what happened at all when she got there. Udolph and his colleague were working for Ken Starr, the independent counsel who had been investigating Clinton for more than three years. They were there to put Monica Lewinsky in a brace. That's what prosecutors call it when they confront a potential witness in a criminal probe. At issue was something Lewinsky had written, a sworn affidavit in which she claimed that she had never had a sexual relationship with Bill Clinton. The point of putting Lewinsky in the brace was to scare her into telling the truth and to convince her to help Ken Starr go after the person he was really interested in, the president. So they take her into this room and they say, you've committed this crime, you signed a false affidavit. And it puts you in such trouble, you may go to jail for 27 years. Udolph's colleagues suggested to Lewinsky that she could make some of that prison time go away if she agreed to work with Starr's office. All she had to do was take part in an undercover operation designed to catch the president committing a crime. Monica Lewinsky had a choice to make. Should she cooperate with a Starr investigation or remain loyal to the president? and risk a decades-long prison sentence. On January 16, 1998, Lewinsky weighed that choice for 11 mind-bending hours. It was a choice that would set the course for the rest of her life. It also put the fate of the Clinton presidency on her shoulders. This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Leon Nafok. In the long history of the American presidency, there's never been anything like this. Sex, lies, and constitutional duty. These kind of issues are not private matters. Congress is rushing to overthrow the commander-in-chief. What has happened in this town? Where is the decency? Over the next two months, I'll be your guide to everything you never knew about the impeachment of Bill Clinton. How did a turbulent series of sexual encounters between the president and a White House intern go from being a secret to an all-consuming national obsession? How did the ensuing scandal change our politics and shape the world we live in now? What did Americans think about and talk about as they were forced to pick sides? And what did they miss in the process? Episode 1, Deal or No Deal. 
When Bruce Udolph joined the Independent Counsel's office in mid-1997, Ken Starr's investigation was focused almost entirely on money. Starr was interested in the Clinton's financial history, specifically something called Whitewater, the Arkansas real estate deal that has dogged President and Mrs. Clinton since they arrived in Washington. The special prosecutor has been looking into this case for... Udolph was 46 years old when he was recruited to join the Starr team. He was an accomplished investigator. He had built up an impressive record going after public corruption in Florida. Many of the lawyers working for Starr are some of the toughest prosecutors in the nation. Bruce Udolph nailed more than a dozen judges, mayors, and cops for corruption while U.S. attorney in Miami. Most of the politicians Udolph went after in Florida were Democrats. But Udolph didn't join up with Starr for partisan reasons or because he wanted to get Bill Clinton. Udolph was a Democrat himself. He had voted for the president. What attracted him to the Starr probe were the stakes. I mean, to work on a case involving allegations of corruption on the part of the president of the United States, I mean, it doesn't, if you're looking to have an impact, it doesn't get more impactful than that. But within six months of Udolph's arrival in Washington, Starr's team had received an astonishing tip from Linda Tripp. It caused the investigation to swerve into questions of presidential adultery and deception. Udolph was skeptical about this new direction. I mean, I went up there fully expecting to investigate the president's involvement or alleged involvement in a real estate deal that had failed. Basically a white-collar investigation. This is not necessarily something I signed up for. And it's not something that I feel terribly good about. Udolph wasn't crazy about the idea of putting Lewinsky in a brace, although he mostly kept his doubts to himself. Some of the more hard-charging prosecutors on the team already thought he was a softie. Later, they would put up a jokey chart on the wall of their office where he was labeled commie wimp. When Udolph suggested that it wasn't a good idea to confront Lewinsky with a group of men and no women, he was told that none of the women in the office were available. Udolph is in his mid-60s now. He lives outside Fort Lauderdale and works as a white-collar defense attorney. And he has a hard time talking about the Monica Lewinsky investigation. When I spoke to him in his office earlier this year, his face would toggle between friendly, cautious, and agonized. And he fidgeted with any small object he could get his hands on. As he answered my questions, there were times when Udolph would stop and think for a full 10 seconds, searching for the right words. This case involving Monica Lewinsky should have been dead on arrival. and it served no useful purpose. Udolph really hates that the Clinton-Lewinsky investigation happened. He hates what it put the country through, and he hates thinking back on that long, tumultuous day in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel that kick-started the whole thing. Looking at Monica Lewinsky that afternoon, Udolph saw a young woman, dressed in spandex and a t-shirt, fighting back tears and biting her fingernails. Prosecutors in the Office of the Independent Counsel referred to the January 16th Lewinsky operation as prom night. Bruce Udolph, despite his reputation as a dove, was one of the two attorneys in charge of persuading Lewinsky to flip. The other was a prosecutor from Los Angeles named Michael Emick. Emick, who died in 2015, was known in the office as something of a charmer. Here's reporter Susan Schmidt, who co-wrote a book about the Star investigation called Truth at Any Cost. He was you know, the nice guy in the office, very good-looking guy, very personable. Schmidt covered the White House for the Washington Post, 
In fact, she helped write the first major newspaper story about Lewinsky a few days after all this happened. Other people were in the next room listening and down the hall, you know, so it was a very carefully thought through interaction with her, but it all went haywire very quickly. That's from episode one, Deal or No Deal of Slowburn. And thanks to Leon Nafark of Slate and Jocelyn Westerhold. And more episodes will be coming out every Thursday over the next couple of months. And that's about all from the podcast hour for now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to A Very Fatal Murder. Sleep With Me, Mic Drop and Slowburn. And please let us have your listening recommendations at pods at radionz.co.nz or on Twitter at RNZ Podcast Hour, and we'll try and feature them on future shows. For now, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.